Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Jack Lloyd. Uh, Jack is an author and a, according to his Twitter profile, is a producer, voluntarist superhero. He not only in February of 2022, uh, his book, which is the definitive guide to libertarian voluntarism, uh, was released, but also he writes uh, a comic book series. So he's very active within the world of the libertarian, I guess I should say party, but really probably the libertarian movement, that type of thing. So really appreciate Jack Lloyd joining me for the episode today. If you're a fan of The Kelly Patrick Show, I ask that you please send some referrals the way of my sponsors. The title sponsor of the show is Louisville Combat Academy, located at 7908 Beulah Church Road, Louisville, Kentucky, 40228. They have a great MMA program, but also, even if you aren't planning on fighting in the cage, they have a great jiu-jitsu program for adults, female-friendly classes, and a great kids program also. Check out Louisville Combat Academy. Heidi Solars Coots. Heidi is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor, specializing in treating anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction with a mindful and holistic approach. Heidi is actually my mother, and I can attest she is a saint. Call her at 502-457-1823. Virtual and telephonic appointments are available anywhere in the United States. Veercast Digital Media. Veercast Digital Media at veercast.com. Matt McCarthy runs Veercast, and he is also the producer for The Kelly Patrick Show. They do video production, aerial drone photography, web design, and podcast production. Contact them at info at veercast.com to start your own video show or podcast. Also, my health insurance practice, Benefits Analysis Corporation. Based in Troy, Ohio, I work from my Louisville, Kentucky office. I can help anyone in the United States with their health insurance needs. I'm an independent broker for health insurance solutions for individuals, families, Medicare-eligible individuals, and also groups. I can also write life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals. 502-386-0978. We are now going to head to the Louisville Combat Academy Roadcaster line where I am joined by Jack Lloyd. Jack, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Doing very well. Really appreciate you joining me for the episode today. Uh, Just a brief introduction Here on the Kelly Patrick Show, I've been recording episodes since 2017, mostly regional MMA, Um, but through 2020, uh, of course, uh, you know, the entirety of the, I don't know what you want to call it, the pandemic or whatever verbiage you want to use, I was somewhat radicalized, and that doesn't mean I'm the most informed uh, libertarian out there or anything remotely close to that, but I am um, now passionate about doing as many of these types of interviews and continuing to learn and spread the message of liberty through whatever capacity uh, I have access to. So the Kelly Patrick Show now, still doing the regional MMA, but I love the idea of interviewing libertarian guests. Jack, you came highly recommended. Um, You know, of course, uh, um, there's through the the magic of social media in today's world, um, 
you know, my, my friend here in Louisville, Brian Fox, certainly recommended me to you. You're a big part of the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus groups and those types of things. But Jack, you are an author. When it comes to nonfiction, uh, you have written The Definitive Guide to Libertarian Voluntarism. If it's all right, Jack, could you give the Kelly Patrick Show audience um, an introduction to who you are? And if you want to, even an introduction to the, the world of of uh, maybe being a libertarian. Like I said, this is almost like a 101, or I hope it is, a 101 introduction type uh, to the world of libertarianism for many people who are listening, at least, fingers crossed, I hope that's the case. But uh, I'll shut up now. Jack, could you introduce yourself, please? Sure, no, I appreciate it, Kelly. Yeah, there's uh, there's uh, quite a, a lot of fun stuff out there. As you said, there's lots of stuff going on in the liberty world, so I'm, I'm grateful to be a part of it. So as, as far as my journey is concerned, I have been engaged in the libertarian sphere for over 15 years, um, just kind of starting with my own journey, moving away from being what was a neoconservative. This is back uh, in the mid 2000s, around 2005, 2006, Serena, uh, you know, typical views there, as you can imagine, in terms of <laughs> the Republican neoconservatives of the time, support of war and, and funding of Israel and, and all that kind of stuff, giving only lip service uh, to liberty, but not really thinking through what liberty meant in terms of government action. And it wasn't until I was in my history class in undergrad that I really started to challenge my thinking on the nature of the state. It was due to a specific topic about the American eugenics movement. And there was this case called Buck v. Bell where Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes forcibly sterilized Carrie Buck because she was an epileptic and she had come from generations of, of other people with issues, I guess you could say. And so I had no idea that this type of thing was going on in America. I didn't ever learn that in high school. No one ever talked to me about the American eugenics movement and how it was actually so big that was actually exported to other countries in Europe. And it caused me to be like, okay, well, if I don't know that, and that's pretty big, what else don't I know about American history? And so I started to do a lot of my own research and using resources from the school I was at because obviously I had access to all different types of stuff, their libraries, you know, JSTOR and all that good stuff. So I started to dive through, look at the development of American history, uh, got to uh, look into some more of the conspiracy subjects with uh, Alex Jones uh, back in the day. And that kind of helped give me some food for thought about where I could go and do my own independent corroboration of, of different things throughout history with CIML feasance, you know, and that type of thing. So um, as I started to go through and challenge myself on the nature of the state through the history side, uh, I started to dive more into libertarian philosophy. And I had lots of encouragement and challenging debates from people who were involved with the Libertarian Party and the Free State Project. This is back in you know, 2007, 2008 arena. And eventually I came across this website called the No State Project by Mark Stevens. And on there he had this quote that said, should goods and services be provided the barrel of a gun? And for me, that was kind of that final straw where I was like, oh, you know what? I can't justify that. I can't justify goods and services being provided by force, by deadly force. I'm like, of course, people should be free to choose what it is they want to buy based on consent. So that kind of turned me into a full-fledged voluntarist. And for those who don't know, a voluntarist is just someone who wants to promote consent in all human relationships. And they do this by respecting each other's bodily property rights, starting with self-ownership, the idea that each individual person has the highest right to their own bodies. And then, of course, there's outward property that is respected as well in terms of the stuff you have, your house, and other things like that. So Voluntarists really care about consent, trying to accurately interpret consent and maximize it as a guide for ethical human behavior. 
and past that time, you know, from going, you know, from learning about these things and then applying it to like street level activism, like just sign waving and going to student groups, running student groups and things like that. I eventually got to a point where I became knowledgeable enough that I wanted to do something a little bigger. And that's when I started to, I guess you could say, work on my own forms of activism instead of participating in others. And I developed a comic book series called Voluntaries the Comic Book Series, which just had its 10th anniversary uh, campaign finish up uh, just this past week. And we, uh, we successfully fundraised for that um, on this issue. And then on top of that, over the years, I have been a producer for various outlets, uh, including uh, Anarchy Ball, The Honest Teacher, The Philosopher, among others, uh, where I create lots of different types of content, doing outreach from videos to memes, music, um, and, and other things like that. And we've hosted events, produced products. So I've had the full gamut of, you could say, liberty activism from working you know, on the streets to working within orgs to uh, creating my own things uh, you know, that are creative and engaging ways to, to reach people with the message of liberty. So that's kind of the short summary of, of the things that I've done. Um, and uh, hopefully that gives kind of a sense of where I'm at in, in terms of my work. Certainly. Uh, a very good introduction. Um, Jack, of course, you have one piece of non-fiction uh, that you have written. Um, but before, mm-hmm. we, before we get to exactly what that is, um, you mentioned your comic book series. Um, am I missing anything? Of course, I, I, I try to emphasize this. I don't know that much about the world of uh, libertarian um, you know, uh, uh, writings and things like that. But um, mm-hmm. Ayn Rand, of course, wrote some, some fiction that could be associated, according to many, with being a maybe a libertarian type uh, of uh, writing style or, or, or themes to the to the uh, uh, pieces of writing. Um, are there many other pieces of um, fiction that have been written in that same vein that I just am unaware of? And mm-hmm. is it important to have fiction that tries to uh, deliver uh, the messaging to, to the masses? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are a number of different liberty creatives who have created things in the fiction realm for, you know, for example, you might have Scott Beezer's a quantum vibe or, um, you know, in the comic book realm. Um, there's been some others who have made, you know, kind of one-offs here and there. There's not too many that have an ongoing series that it has truly lasted. So I'm, I'm pretty aware of most, all the major Liberty content creators in the genre that I do with comic books. Um, and it's, I think I can probably count it on one hand in terms of people who's, series actually deals with principles of liberty in the comic, not just simply someone who is libertarian and writes something that has nothing to do with it at all. Um, you know, people who actually integrate the principles into their writing, or at least, you know, it's thematically applies there. So, you know, there's, there's not too, too many, uh, who do that genre. Of course, uh, fictional writing, a little bit more prolific, you could say when it comes to what's available out there. Ayn Rand definitely is in the libertarian genre for her work even though it's objectivist, of course, it's, you know, libertarian in terms of being about uh, individual self-ownership and things like that. She, you know, she was very libertarian in her ethics overall, uh, although she was a minarchist. Uh, and then you have, you know, like the moon is a harsh mistress and, and things like that. And alongside night, those are other, you know, fictional writings that tie into libertarian values and, and uh, you know, promote it in the themes. So I would say the past maybe five to 10 years, we've seen the most growth in this realm. And I personally have been a part of 
or, or mentor people who are currently developing projects. So there's a number of projects that are going to be coming out um, in this realm of, of, I guess you could say, uh, Liberty Entertainment Creative stuff that, that is going to be you know coming to fruition soon in the near future. So that you're going to see this stuff explode. And I think right now, uh, Eric July has probably been one of the biggest, if not the biggest uh, at this point, promoters of that concept. That is this idea that people should exit out of the mainstream, out of what you know Amazon and Disney and DC and all of them are doing and destroying these you know loved characters. And people should start supporting alternatives, uh, you know, that actually care about the principles of, of liberty, at least the authors, if not, you know, the story itself at least has some type of value that appreciates individual liberty. So um, there's a huge amount of growth opportunity. There's a huge lot of opportunity for people if they're looking to get into this now because so many people are so tired of the mainstream. And the reason why it's so important to have this is because it's true that if you keep supporting those who definitely don't appreciate freedom or individual, you know, liberty of property rights, then that, that money is going into a circulation of people who are actively lobbying to upend individual property rights. So there is value to this exit. I think it's an important one because it's getting people to take their resources and put it into the pockets of those who actually support their human freedom and do so in, in various ways, whether it's, you know, vocally or supporting organizations like the Mason Institute and things like that are helping educate young people. So I, I think it's just, uh, it's a really important and needed ch- a change and shift uh, away from the status paradigm, this, you know, central planning paradigm. And it's only going to further grow over these next few years as the, uh, as you could say that the mainstream exit has just gone you know, through the roof exponentially. And you see things like Tuttle Twins having their own animated show and Daily Wire putting together their own uh, movies. You know, so the people are, are really putting their, their money where their mouth is now and saying, yeah, enough's enough. We're going to support these. So it's, it's a great time to be a creator for liberty in this space. And it's a, it's a fun way to help inspire people for the future of what, you know, a free future could look like. I want to make sure we get to a summary of what the definitive guide to libertarian voluntarism is in just a moment. But while we're on this topic, um, you mentioned Daily Wire. Did, were you differentiating them between the world of liberty um, or are they somewhat liberty centric or uh, what are your thoughts on the Daily Wire? So the Daily Wire is more of a conservative than libertarian organization, although conservatives have been pushed in, in large degree in terms of the alt conservative realm toward libertarian values because there's just been such a huge, uh, you know, I guess you could say wave of attack against that media. So it's gotten some of them to start to recognize the value of libertarian principles, at least in the property rights realm. And I think some of this evidence that you can see could be like, for example, Glenn Beck, Glenn Beck um, having on Michael Malice and having on Eric July. You're starting to see, you know, people like Ben Shapiro have on uh, liberty oriented guests. You're starting to see that, that kind of shift take place, which is a good thing, obviously, even though these people who are in that realm, like Daily Wire, are definitely not libertarians, um, you know, through and through. But the idea that you're seeing this exit become normalized. That is a huge first step. And I think that that's important to recognize that when you start to get people to to think outside of the mainstream conglomerates and the big media corporations that own large swaths of the media out there, it's a good thing because it's it's getting people to consider taking their monies out of there and starting to support the alternatives. And I think that's a part of the pipelining process of moving people down toward the libertarian path. And we are definitely seeing that happen. We're starting to see an exit 
from the mainstream conservative realm toward libertarian ideas because of the attacks and the polarization. And I think that that's, that's a great thing, especially myself, you know, having come from that background, you know, being a Republican and neoconservative, I definitely understand the value of pipelining and helping to educate people out of that mentality. And so, you know, this is just a really great time to help wake people up with the seeds of liberty. And I think a good example of, of that being effective is, of course, Tuttle Twins. Tuttle Twins is definitely helping people in that realm uh, be able to understand the real important pro- property rights principles through their series and, and why it's so important to have the government, you know, stay out of our lives, you know, at least starting with the economic part, you know, if not the uh, social eventually. Uh, so I think that it's, it's a great time to be a, a creator and to reach out to people and to push the Overton window toward uh, a libertarian messaging in all areas of, of communication and, and entertainment and, 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 you know, education likewise. Would you agree with the statement that it is easier to recruit people to the world of being a libertarian from the right than it is to recruit people from the left? I think that there, there is, it, it would be difficult to say that it's necessarily uh, easier. There's, there's hangups for both that are very uh, sticky. <laughs> you know, obviously the, the left mainstream their hangup is always about welfare and, and about taking care of people for people on the right. Their focus oddly enough is on like safety and order and that, you know, their worship of militarism and the police um, keeps them supporting the warfare state, <laughs> which has, of course it's oh massive problems in terms of, of blowback and uh, weaponization against people domestically. I think that what I like to typically get people to focus in on with each group um, and sometimes it might be a little bit easier on the right to reach this, this subgroup is people who have a fundamentalist view uh, of certain, some type of property right. So if you think about within the Republican camp, the Second Amendment, right? The idea of shall not be infringed. If someone can understand there's this property right idea that, oh, okay, the government should not be messing with this at all. For me, it's a bit easier to convince them of the rest of the property rights because if they can understand, hey, you know, guns can be unsafe and they can be dangerous. They can even be used to kill people, but it doesn't matter. The government has no right to hurt innocent people. Well, that's that's a big intellectual hurdle to overcome. Um, you know that otherwise that you know you'd have to overcome independently if someone didn't have at least one thing that they thought in that absolutist fundamentalist term. So I would say reaching out to people who really understand the Second Amendment, at least in, in conservative circles, to me is probably one of the easiest because it's easier for me to make the analogies for the rest of property rights and to show them how the government infringes on the rest of property rights uh, incrementally as they do with gun rights. On the left, I might get that with someone who's serious about, um, you could say, uh, drug use in, in terms of you know legalizing all different types of whatever types of drugs that the government's you know, been banning that, of course, in many cases are actually therapeutics, you know, like psychedelics and stuff like that that helps you with depression and other issues. Um, so if someone's absolutist there, that would be maybe where I'd target reaching out to them there. I would say that um, when you get down to actually talking through the economics of things, I, I would say ultimately, well, it is easier to, to sit there and say, well, yeah, maybe conservatives are a little bit easier to talk to. They're not necessarily once you actually break down economic principles because a lot of them really don't get those economic principles. And if you have to do the hard work of the economic principles, then that's where it can be frustrating. Um, I do think that someone who 
is more conservative may be easier to uh, get to buy into this idea of deontological ethics. That is this idea that there's like core principles that one kind of lives by and follows through deductively and logically. Um, someone who is more utilitarian, like, you know, from the, maybe the left side where they think, Hey, uh, the government needs to meet the subjective end of welfare, no matter what, and screw the consequences. Well, yeah, that's going to be tough. So it, it's going to be really more so a, a dividing line in terms of who's easier, or harder here between those who actually value principles. That is that they see these certain types of absolutism, uh, basic principles being, you know, applied for humans for certain areas, whether it's speech or drugs or guns, whatever, those people, they're a bit easier to reach, whether it's left or right, than it is for someone who is economically ignorant and uh, doesn't uh, actually value the principle approach to thinking through their ethics uh, because they're just focused on the end result. And as someone who just cares about the end results and doesn't think about the means and the consequences and the blowback, well, that's a whole other field of, of educating them that, you know, it takes a lot of work. It doesn't matter who it is left or right. That's, that's pulling teeth. <laughs> and, you know, I've done it all. So, you know, I, I've been there, done that kind of thing, but it's, it's, it's always going to be a challenge to overcome status brainwashing. It's, it's, it's highly ingrained from 12, 13 years in, in compulsory public schools. So. The easiest comparison for anyone to make when it comes to uh, uh, political evolution internally, I guess, would be me to look at myself. I was raised as a Republican, and I vo- I'm 38 years old. I always voted Republican, at least for president. Um, I guess I didn't really even know why, um, but I always had the idea that, of course, you had drugs, or at least weed being illegal was stupid. I always thought school public schools or whatever, all schools probably, were kind of bullshit. I didn't like the idea of um, some fucking guy in the front of a classroom like telling me whether or not I was smart. That just inherently seemed silly to me. Now, I didn't have a, a real foundational, um, you know, rationale for that. Um, but I guess that is consistent in a lot of ways with the libertarian type of principles. The, the foreign policy, and I know I, I'm bouncing all over the place. I'm very ADD with my interview style. But the foreign policy uh, concept or the, the portion of the libertarian um, uh, foundational uh, you know, approach to things is one that I think is sometimes difficult to talk to people about. I think someone who, you know, I'm thinking of a couple of my friends in particular who are still big time Republicans, maybe big Trump supporters, and you start to talk to them about foreign policy and they say, well, you know, we need to continue to spread democracy overseas um, in order to keep us safe here. We have to control certain things over there. You just don't get it. And they kind of leave it at that. Um, so I know I throw, threw a lot of stuff at you there. Um, but once again, I have evolved from the world of, I guess my father always has been a Republican and very much so still is. So I always voted Republican. I noticed that the public school system, or at least the school system, which for me was a public school system, seemed to be bullshit. The people who were, I was being told are intelligent um, to me, at least, it did not necessarily make sense always. Now, there's exceptions, um, uh, uh, you know, different ways in that. But then also the, the world of uh, foreign policy. So once again, I know that's a, a, a mixture of a bunch of different topics, but what are your thoughts on someone's individual political evolution and then also the, the foreign policy topic? 
Sure. So with uh, you know individual changes over time, obviously everybody's going to be different because depending on what their attitudes were growing up, their influences with their family and what was modeled for them, their positive and their negative interactions, uh, especially if someone had a seemingly positive interaction with like government workers in some way, whether it's teachers or the police or like that, it's going to color their worldview and, and that can make it more difficult for them to think about the nature of those roles and how they're funded in a consistent way because they just have that kind of visceral emotional reaction to it. Now, if someone has had a negative reaction like you did, of course, you didn't like the, the teachers telling you what to do and trying to say that you're either, you know, more intelligent or less intelligent or whatever a student F student based on how much you obeyed them. I mean, that, that kind of was already built there for you as kind of this rejection of this forced authority. So yeah, I mean, it, it, it's always going to be up to an individual's journey and where they're at. And for me, whenever I'm talking with people about their journey and, and where they're at in their life, I always like to, you know, ask them what it was like for them growing up, what their treatment was like at home or what type of interactions they had, you know, if they went to a certain school and so on and so forth and just kind of, you know, walk them through their own experiences so that they can empathetically relate with what actually took place. Um, especially I do that too when it comes to, to young people and, and their experiences with the schooling system because that's basically the, uh, the schooling system is a prison for kids. I, I do that with the honest teacher and, and get people to think about the nature of compulsory schooling, which is really just central planning of young people's lives. It's, it, you know, in any other context, you'd be like, wait, what the government's going to plan my life and what I do hour by hour for 13 years. That'd be crazy. Right. If it started at 20 or 30, like no way. But because it's with kids and they can't, you know, fully take care of themselves or consent, you know, it's easier for people to just kind of be like, no, you need to be here because otherwise it'll be stupid. So definitely try to unravel people's brainwashing from that if, if they have any uh, leftover. Though these days, more and more people are rejecting the school paradigm. So that's, that's good to know because it's just so bad there. It's so oppressive and controlling and shaming and, you know, sedentary. Uh, you know, a lot of people are just tired of it. So, um, and then the foreign policy part, um, I'm not exactly sure uh, what angle you'd like me to cover per se, but obviously the uh, Republican view on foreign policy that is pretty standard these days is, you know, the neocon policy is so destructive for individual liberty here and abroad because it's, it's mass theft being used to manipulate situations abroad, whether it's directly, you know, with finances, think like Ukraine, for political purposes and like backroom deals you know, kind of greasing the wheels of different political figures and their kids, uh, or it's something for mass violence that subsidizes various war corporations, military industrial complex corporations, you know, think like Halliburton, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, um, you know, and, and these congressmen are invested in this and they love the kickbacks and the support for their campaigns. And then these different, organizations, you know, have their various weapons being used and that creates more conflict and more rationalizations for more interventions. And it's a never ending cycle of blowback across the world. And of course it makes people here at home much less safe because now there's lots of people of various sorts, whether it's, you know, small time terrorist, individual actor to, you know, governments or guerrilla organizations trying to exact revenge. It, it, it creates some really bad, uh, you know, situations and negative consequences. And then, of course, the rights of individuals here are violated 
uh, in the name of trying to stop this, you know, quote unquote amorphous war on terror situation. And the you know, whole Bill of Rights has been largely eviscerated when you think about the NDAA and the Patriot Act and, and you know, what's done essentially to label people as enemy combatants is, you know, the subjective label of, of what they could say someone's, you know, belligerent. And then you go to a secret FISA court and you have no due process. It's, it's really, it's terrible. Um, and, and people just don't even blink about it because they think, oh, well, it's, it's right. It's just so we fight the terrorists and they don't win, right? And that was a very easy sell after 9-11 uh, because whenever there's a big catastrophe, the government's like, oh, okay, well, uh, we'll use this to expand the, the warfare state here and get more powers for ourselves under a net, you know emergency situation. So uh, that, that's, that's a real danger that is often missed from that camp too. Um, when people want to talk about, you know, who's better or worse, you know, the Republicans and Democrats, like, no, these people, uh, they all love collaborating when it comes to growing their own power. And it doesn't matter whether you're Republican or Democrat, by and large, they are out there supporting, to some degree, wars around the world and or foreign aid, a.k.a., you know, government money laundering to, to wash what they're doing with secret deals. So that's uh, it's, it's very important to, to get a prize for that. And I do recommend this book called Blowback, the Cost and Consequences of American Empire. So Blowback, you can Google that on, or on Amazon, pick it up. It's a, it's a really comprehensive uh, history of some of these interventions slash you know, wars across the world and what that's done in, in, in terms of serious uh, consequences for American liberties as well as you know, people being killed um, in, in conflict and then the blowback from there creating more justification and more death. Now, I asked you regarding um, kind of um, recruiting people from the right and talking to them about foreign policy. So, of course, you mentioned the neocon approach to foreign policy. Um, So you did answer my question, did it very directly. Is there a difference between, so that's more of the Republican approach to foreign policy. Would you differentiate between the Republican approach to foreign policy versus the Democrat approach to foreign policy? Because it seems to me, and once again, I'm still very new to all of this, that it's basically the same type of thing. It's just, if the Republicans in office, then the Democrats will say they're fucking everything up and vice versa, but they're really doing basically the same type stuff over and over again. Or is there a way that you would differentiate between the two? Yeah, no, there's there's no material difference, at least at the federal level between the Republicans, Democrats in terms of their bilateral support of, of war and intervention, you're always going to have some dissent on left and right, whether it's someone like Bernie Sanders or someone like Rand Paul or Ron Paul kind of thing where, you know, on the mainstream left and right, you'll have people that say no to war uh, within each camp. But by and large, you're going to have the overwhelming majority on both sides typically come together to uh, approve various interventions of sorts and various, you could say, uh, funding mechanisms of sorts for different governments. I mean, Ukraine... It's just one of those more recent ones, giving them $40 billion, and now they're seeking more money. And meanwhile, they're, that is in the mainstream, both the White House all the way to the mainstream corporations and the media are you know, covering up all the history and connections between the Bidens and the Ukrainian government and the, the crony deals that were going on there, especially with Hunter Biden. And you know, I'm sure you know quite well how much of that was covered up with his laptop that exposed the kinds of activities he was engaged in over there in, in Greece and his, his wheels and, and getting the Ukrainian government to have a, a selective uh, energy deal with exports instead of having energy at home 
that is, you know, oil excavation, things like that, you know, doing imports and crony deals so that the, the Bidens could be the recipients of those, of those benefits. So it's, uh, yeah, it's across the board. They're, all these people are only interested in their power and, and perpetuating their ability to rule when they're in and out of office. So it's, it's nothing unique to Republicans or Democrats. You'll find by and large, if you go through the legislative history, you know, widespread support of various wars, especially in the past 20 plus years since nine 11, when you had that perfect justification and from the government's, you know, vantage of, of selling it saying, Oh, see, this is exactly why we need to go to war. You know, the terrorist bomb is like, they never even went after the Saudi Arabian government, of course, where these hijackers are supposedly from, uh, because obviously there's lots of deals with Saudi Arabia about oil and the bushes. So, uh, that, wasn't exactly going to happen. And meanwhile, of course, they're you know selling weapons to Saudi Arabia too. So it the whole thing is, is just a sham. It's all it's all a farce. And the more people actually look at who is approving these weapons deals that's you know going on around the world to these oppressive governments, which all governments are oppressive, but some are extra oppressive. Um, and the financial aid that's being given now, and the interventions being done across you know Libya and Syria, you know, and so forth. It's you know, it, it really is just a bipartisan issue here and bipartisan meaning, you know, two sides of the same coin oppressing everybody. So, um, To continue with the foreign policy conversation, my wife Yanni is from Cuba. She came to the United States in 2014. So, of course, she has a, um, a very specific or a unique to that type of uh, those relations with Cuba uh, perspective when it comes to foreign policy. Uh, One thing when her and I are kind of grappling with these types of conversations, one obstacle I have come across is the notion, and you correct me if I'm wrong, once again, I'm still very new to all this, that the libertarian approach to foreign policy would be just trade with everybody. The Uyghurs, uh, Chinese the Chinese Communist Party is exploiting the Uyghurs, and there's horrible uh, practices of, um, you know, very inhumane treatment to these people in the Uyghur camps. I mean, I've, I've read one time where there was even people in the Uyghur camps who are born, um, they don't ever learn to speak any language, they learn to work, they work their whole life, and then they, they die, and they never did anything except for basically be a slave in this camp. But the libertarian approach, which my wife Yanni would would be critical of would be that's their problem fuck it no sanctions let's just trade with them um is is my description of the libertarian approach to foreign policy in that instance is that uh consistent with what is the libertarian approach and uh, do you have any other thoughts on on that sure so what's important to recognize with this is is what we're talking about in terms of the specifics of actors and actions. So libertarians focus on individual actors and individual actions. So we don't like to abstract with like, Oh, it's, you know, the Russians versus the Chinese or this, that like there's, there's specific people and they're doing specific things to others. So uh, when it comes to governments that are oppressive, uh, the question there is, is okay. So should people just not trade in this region because the government's oppressive to certain people? And we have to really think about what that means. And what it means is that people who are otherwise innocent are suffering because they're being cut off from global trade. So on one hand, people want to be like, well, um, 
you know, if we can do economic sanctions, then maybe that'll put some pressure. But in reality, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, so you're starving hundreds of thousands, millions of people potentially um, in the process who are completely innocent. So this idea that one can just have narrowly tailored economic sanctions is often kind of comedic because those who are in the state powers of the highest, you know, echelons, they're going to get what they want. They, you know, they're going to have smugglers. They're going to have people who bring them whatever type of foods or technologies that they want. This happens in North Korea. It happens in Venezuela. It happens in Cuba. You know, the elite, they get their, you know, secret shares. It's the general population who ends up uh, really suffering, starving from these sanctions. So uh, the libertarian position when it comes to these foreign government acts of oppression against, you know, the local population is that, it's not the, the local, that is the regional government's job to police the world. So in this case, America, it's not their job to police the rest of the world and make everything right. No more than the Swedish government's responsibility is to fix the world or the Chinese CCP is whatever. You know, governments are fundamentally the problem. So relying on the institution that actually is stealing from people at large and engaging in massive cronyism and wars and murder in other countries you know, relying on them to solve the world's problems is not really the the best idea there as, as they're the ones who often cause further problems and then, you know, double fund different t- sides of wars and arm, you know, different types of guerrilla groups that end up becoming terrorist groups later, right? With the Mujahideen, you know, the Taliban and so on and so forth, or, you know, Syrian rebels becoming ISIS. It's, it's always the same thing. So the solution here is freedom in trade and freedom of information. And, many of these governments don't want those things for the people in terms of the the lower end. They don't want that freedom of information. They don't want the freedom of trade because the more people at the, uh, you know, general population level have access to resources and have access to information, the more they become empowered and emboldened to fight back. And that's really what's needed for sustainable change. And this is why regime change, you know, the Middle East doesn't really work is because you can bomb out, you know, all the different governments and stuff like that. But if the general population doesn't appreciate property rights, they don't actually value respecting, you know, physical possessions and, and self-ownership. Well, they're going to just keep perpetuating the same system they had before because they're not going to know any better, know any different. So you have to have education and ethics and economics. And that's why, you know, bombing people into uh, submission here doesn't change the culture, you know, per se, say in that way. Uh, what does is, is ethical change. And we're not going to get that through the state. Uh, of course, people who wish to help support those that is directly um, in, in their fight against oppressive governments should always be allowed to do that. So on an individual level, individuals supporting with munitions, arms, uh, food, and things like that. Absolutely. Uh, you know, libertarians would of course support that and say the government should not get in the way of people trying to support people voluntarily uh, against any government uh, threats you know, around the world. And that's really the, the ethical uh, battle that must be fought is, is that people must be able to choose what it is they're willing to provide and how they're willing to provide to help stop oppressive governments, not have the government force a one size fits all policy where they're just taking money from the poor in America and then giving it to the, the rich in a foreign country or the ruling elite there, where they're going to use that to continue to oppress people even more. So, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the core of it. And it's absolutely tragic, of course, that there is mass oppression, whether it's the Uyghurs or people of Cuba. Uh, but as you know, and I think probably from the Cuban experience a lot, especially from her, uh, there people are thirsty for freedom and want to 
lead and be empowered. And that's why so many people are willing to get on a, you know, a broken up boat or just a, a car with tires on it. Somehow they make it you know, float to America. They're so desperate to flee. Um, and I think that, you know, the Cuban American experience there, especially you know, strong in Miami uh, shows a group of people who really want to help their, their fellow family members either escape or, or upend the oppression that's, that's in that country. So empowering people to do things directly, that is individuals being able to individually choose what it is that they support with. I think that's the, the real core libertarian position. Um, and again, it's not that that's a stamp of approval on any type of mass harm on anywhere, whether it's, you know, imprisonment and, and uh, work camps, you know, or whatever else of that nature, but rather it's the recognition that there is going to be a lot of theft and murder when you rely on the government to try to fix the problems. And people just ignore that when there's bombings and trying to free people or there's famines and starvation because of, of the conflict that ensues. Just like in, in the Middle East, there is well over a million casualties in the supposed liberation of Iraq, right? And meanwhile, there's still all these conflicts going on with, you know, the different uh, terrorist groups. So it's, it's never a simple and easy solution, but libertarians offer the ethical path, which is people individually supporting those who want liberation against tyrannical governments. And the more we can educate people and empower people to do so, the less likely we have the chance of blowback because of, of just one size fits all policy with the government going in and just blowing places up with, you know, with, uh, with drones and, and, you know, shooting people and then having soldiers kind of manage the area. And then it's like an occupy military force. And then that creates resentment against the, the native population there. So it, it's just, it's not a solution that um, ultimately brings lasting peace. The lasting peace solution is always through free trade, education, and defense at the individual level supported by people who choose to help those who are resisting uh, government oppression. It is a very nuanced topic because at first glance, someone explains to you, someone like maybe Marco Rubio, who represents to a lot of the American people, represents the interests of Cuba. He would say, we need to have these sanctions against Cuba to starve out the regime and they will collapse eventually. OK, so that's the approach or that's my uh, dummied down version of Marco Rubio's probable explanation for why we need these sanctions. But I have gotten my wife, Yanni, to listen to Rand Paul and Ron Paul at different times describe why sanctions are bad. So I've at least gotten her to budge on the idea of sanctions against Cuba, because as you said, Jack, she acknowledges that even when Cuba, which right now, shit is pretty bad in Cuba. Her family's not doing well. Uh, but the, the, the government officials, oh, they're doing fine. They don't even, like, hide it. It's all over their social media. They're out on yachts. They're going, you know, doing all this fancy fishing. So I have gotten her to, specific to her native country, to... Um, entertain the idea of even in a way she hates biden don't get me wrong but she has said that biden the biden administration i should say list, lifting some of the recent sanctions um in a way was maybe a good thing because it hasn't helped the average person in cuba at all and she can attest to that like i said i mean she has her father her sister all her friends from her ch childhood everyone is there and right now it's arguably worse than it has been since she was born in 1987. So, I mean, Biden lifted the sanctions. The government officials are doing great, um, but it's not helping the average person at all. 
Right. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, it's something that, I mean, it's just the nature of these elite people. Like they have the resources, they have the military backing that even when they get sanctions, they're like, okay, yeah, we're just going to pay people to smuggle in stuff. You know, they're going to, they're going to get whatever it is that they want and need at the expense of everybody else. Cause they don't care that, you know, they, they already are committed to the idea that they will kill who they need and steal from who they need to keep up their rule. And that's the ultimate problem there is that these people don't have to respond to any type of market incentives there at the top because they're not market actors. They are people who are a mafia and as is with the mafia, they will take out whoever they need in order to keep things running. And so the greatest threat to their rule is the masses with knowledge, nourishment, and armament to be able to fight back themselves. Um, that's, that's what they really, uh, you know, fear is, is that mass uproar, uh, um, I should say, uh, revolt and uprising. Um, just like in North Korea, you know, in North Korea, the government, obviously, despite many sanctions across the world, still is in power because they don't care. They'll just get whatever resources they want and they will pay off the soldiers because the soldiers will live better than the average person. So they'll take care of the soldiers and the soldiers then of course uh, enforce the rule against the wider population. Jack, I really appreciate you being willing to jump into basically whatever topic I throw at you because we ended up focusing specifically on a lot of foreign policy there for a while. And we did not go into this interview at all with any set um, you know, guideline to what we were going to discuss, which is pretty cool. I think most libertarian people I interview, that's kind of the case. They're like, okay, I may not know everything, but throw it at me. Let's kind of talk about it. So I absolutely appreciate that. What is your, your book, The Definitive Guide to Libertarian Voluntarism? It was released or published in February of this year. Um, obviously, it's a guide to what is being a libertarian. But beyond that, how could you describe what is the book? Sure. So my book was set out to do something that from my view hadn't really been done before, which is to take the principles of libertarianism, which is the property rights theory and voluntarism, which is a consent ethics theory and to define them clearly and then justify them with reason and evidence about why it is that these principles uh, operate the way they do and why they are rather natural in terms of how people act already. And that's why they're, you know, so consistent. So I go through these principles in a succinct manner, unifying these theories. And I also then address some of the common objections that people have about them in different fields of thought, you know, whether it's, you know, something about the roads or warlords or, you know, abortion, even I talk about everything that people typically come up with whenever they have an objection or complaint. And it's not just, you know, meant to be something that's, you know, standalone. I do give a lot of of further food for thought references. So my book is littered with different references for further um, expounding and for research and things like that. But it does give a thorough summary and overview in a novel way, a way that hasn't been done before, um, uh, you know, to give people a sense of, of what it's all about. So I made it in such a way that pretty much anybody could probably pick it up and get a sense of what it means to be a libertarian voluntarist and could then you know, start applying the principles for themselves and in their life and then could follow up with different references in there if they want to go deeper into economic theory, if they want to go deeper into things about the state and all the horrible things the state has done. So my, my book is not a, a bunch of 
quotes from other people. It's not a bunch of, you know, just like excerpts about history. It's, it's philosophy and it's uh, novel philosophy. It's, it's novel definitions. So it's, it's unique and it's been very well received surprisingly just cause I know there's a lot of people who've written all the types of books in this field. Uh, but so far none have really, I think, uh, come to this, this level of, of unification that I present in my book. It just doesn't really exist out there in this way where we're talking about defining the terms about statism, non-aggression principle, uh, libertarianism, voluntarism, self-ownership, and, and really walking through what that means in a way that anybody can sit there and think about it for themselves and think about, okay, is, is this really how I think? Is this really how I act? And, and kind of flesh it out for themselves so that they can defend these principles. Jack, are you doing okay on time? You tell me, how are you on time? I'm fine on time. Okay. Um, I'll continue because your ask me anything approach to being interviewed is very appreciated. And obviously your area of expertise is people throwing um, common or maybe uncommon even um, criticisms of the libertarian approach at you and you handling those. So my wife Yanni and I have been watching horrible cult uh, specials, whether it's on Amazon Prime or Netflix, things like that. A couple in particular recently we've watched would be Children of God from 1994, horrible sex cult from based in California. They moved into different countries. And then we also watched that Warren Jeffs stuff. It's called Keep Sweet, Pray, and Obey, of course, is about the fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Once again, a horrible absolutely disturbing uh, sex cult, okay? I don't know why we're so into watching this shit. It's really disturbing. Um, But it is intriguing for some reason. Yanni, my wife, mentioned what would a libertarian approach to that type of shit be? Like, the government is, in effect, what ended up moving in and, I mean, I guess you could say saving a lot of these people at the end of the day. Uh, in particular with the uh, Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So I guess what I'm asking, Jack, is if a weird religion comes along, they should be able to be a weird religion, right? There's no question about that, freedom of whatever you want to do. But doesn't there have to be a line at some point where they start doing some crazy shit and people are banging each other's kids when they're real young and there's just all sorts of horrible things going on? In a libertarian, I, I know you probably don't like to uh, me to use the word utopian because there's no such thing, I guess, really, probably. Uh, but in a libertarian approach to, uh, let's say, running our country, how would something like that possibly be handled? Sure. So, you know, first thing I like to remind people of is, is the compared to what when it comes to, you know, managing child abuse and things like that. And I think the Epstein case was a really good example of how deeply entrenched this type of trafficking and child abuse is uh, around America. Uh, you know, when people think, oh, the government's saving kids, and I'm like, yeah, you, you think they're saving some kids, and definitely there's, there's kids being saved. There's always, you know, kids being uh, rescued from kidnappers, and there's definitely times when kids are being taken care of. But don't forget, the government also covers up <laughs> quite a bit of trafficking, and a lot of people are bought off and are even themselves involved in it. There's, you know, sometimes you'll even read about cases where in a, in a sweep uh, it's caught up that, you know, as a teacher who was involved or a mayor or like a police officer and so on and so forth. So these issues plague everything and everywhere. It's not something that is 
limited to any one context, a child abuse, uh, sexual or physical, you know, in terms of, you know, really hurting kids, stabbing, whatever, beaten, a bloody pulp kind of thing that exists everywhere, even with government. So the question then is, is what is the most ethical way to deal with those things without creating more opportunities for conflict and also creating an institution that allows those who actually want to enact mass child abuse to cover up their crimes. Because of course, where's the place to go? If you're actually someone who wants to run a ring or wants to cover up trafficking, right? You want to join the government, of course. So you, you join the government, you can cover up your crimes. You can be, you know, you can be someone who uh, is a, an investigator covering up things. You could be a judge. You could be a politician, just like Epstein was literally like, just kept on the house arrest effectively. They love coming out and out of the jails in Florida way before the actual, you know, main case. And before he was put into to prison and, you know, did suicide himself, you know? So uh, for the libertarian, there's different uh, incrementalisms we can, we can discuss in my book. What I advocate for in, in terms of these stepping stones is what's called the not-for-profit government model. And the not-for-profit government model is just simply the idea that the government as it stands should not, be funded by taxation. It should instead be funded solely by voluntary means, which can include, uh, you know, raffles or lottery tickets or direct, um, you know, service, uh, you could say uh, opportunities like someone getting trainings and paying for that, that kind of thing. So one of the key things here, you know, that I'm really trying to get people to think about is how do we get to solutions outside of, of compulsion? And, getting that with the state and helping to uh, remove those incentives for people to cover up these types of child trafficking things is a big first step. After that, we're talking about ethics and philosophy and private market solutions. So the uh, ethics and philosophy of course, and voluntarism for children for child treatment is that the young people, you know, can't consent to sex. We're talking about prepubescence before kids are actually able to even you know, have that biological function of thing. Obviously that is considered an ethical and a violation of parents, uh, you know, stewardship, their, you know, trust relationship. Uh, when it comes to physical abuse, of course, libertarians by and large, although some, you know, some people say, no, I, I advocate for a uh, you know, peaceful parenting approach, which is the um, abdication of, of spanking or hitting as a means for discipline and learning. So that is itself another, uh, you know, aspect to educating others on, on how to have a more peaceful home. So when there is a serious problem, uh, it is, let's just say there's a, a situation where parents are so strung out and they're, they're neglecting their kids and their kids aren't being fed, they're starving, things like that. There is, from a libertarian perspective, an ethical ability or right for others to be able to provide for a child should a parent abdicate that uh, trust relationship. A parent does not have an ethical right to forcibly starve a child, for example. They can't say, well, you know, we're just not going to feed this kid. We're going to lock up and chain them up and, you know, and starve them and beat them, that kind of thing. So how these things get discovered, of course, is always, uh, you know, a tricky situation because as even with the status paradigm now, uh, you know, a lot of times you don't find out about this situation until something drastic happens, whether it's a child escaping imprisonment or eventually somebody finally has the courage to come out of sexual abuse. And sometimes, we're talking many victims that have already passed before someone gets the ability to speak out or confidence to speak out because often they're threatened. You know, I think like a school teacher that has a lot of victims over years. So when this comes to attention, um, I advocate, you know, for, for the idea within libertarian ethics that others 
have the right to use defensive force for a child in that you know narrow regard. Um, this isn't just for any old willy-nilly thing. We're talking about actual sexual predation. We're talking about actual starvation. We're talking about actual like you know physical injury, abuse, you know that kind of thing. So, in the transition model, a government that's in the not-for-profit government model—that is, a government that is uh, funded only voluntarily—could be charged with dealing with these situations um, because it would be property rights defense, you know, defense of, of individual young people. Uh, and over time, these types of issues could also be dealt with um, in, in other methods or mechanisms in, you could say, uh, through, through d- insurance agencies such as, you know, dispute resolution organizations. Again, this is just a, a theoretical future construct in that, this isn't a norm, but it's a very real possibility if we're moving toward market norms that uh, parents who do so will have um, possibly a s- economic sanctions against them to start, or uh, they might have social accountability within a certain uh, area, uh, whether it comes through a church or other social civic institution. So these types of, uh, I guess you could say, uh, uh, trials or uh, investigations uh, certainly would have uh, a type of uh, interest within you know people wanting to defend kids. I mean, this is already abundantly clear if you look at organizations that go out of their way to rescue kids or help kids from Chris Hansen and what they do to, I know a lot of, uh, there's like a, this group of ex-veterans or SEALs that go and rescue kids and things like that. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty, uh, I guess you could say, widespread and, and passionate uh, endeavor. There's a lot of people who are interested in, in saving kids and especially from predators and from other stuff. So the idea that, the, that there isn't an interest in this already, uh, you know, is kind of silly. There's people who, who fund and support these things and will even uh, donate to um, charitable organizations like GoFundMe or DonorC or whatever to help children who leave a, a, a situation that is, you know, abusive or, you know, or um, I guess you could say physically violent. And I can think of a specific example, even not too long ago, just uh, years ago, there was a guy who he was, um, you know, claiming to be a libertarian. Of course he wasn't, because he was violating his, his uh, daughter and people in the Liberty community exposed him. He got arrested and then everybody did a fundraiser for his kid raising thousands and thousands of dollars uh, to provide uh, his child with a uh, counseling and the mother um, who had, you know, was estranged uh, through a divorce with resources for her to help take care of her kids. So, there are many ways uh, to help uh, children, and I think that the uh, what the ultimate end will look like will depend uh, on the market and what people eventually end up supporting. But for a libertarian transition for right now, I, I definitely think that the not-for-profit government model, um, that is just the government doing those types of investigations, but within a context of voluntary funding, would certainly be a sufficient uh, intermediary, like an intermediate um, stepping stone toward that end and that people already do. And when they have the resources too, are much more readily able to help fund a help for kids who have been physically abused or, or sexually predated upon. And you know, that it just already exists. So when you're getting government out of the way and they're not being you know, funded to, to basically blow up people in the middle East and, and destroy and predate on kids, you know, overseas, uh, you're going to have a lot more resources in people's pockets. Uh, to be able to fund things that people actually do value. And there's abundant uh, evidence of that. Anybody can just go on to any news story about a child that's been rescued or, or again, go fund me, go look up all these cases of individuals funding uh, those who have been uh, victimized. It's, it's 
very common. People have that self psychological interest of wanting to see kids healed and taken care of. So it's, it's just not a, a you could say a, a far stretch of the imagination that that would continue to be so. Good answer. And I think at the very beginning, when you said for starters, Jack, you said for starters, we have to keep in mind, I think what you said, I don't want to misquote you, but you said compared to what? Right. So it's like, okay, well, it's not like we've exactly, the current system is just eliminating all this stuff from happening. So to keep that in mind, I think is an important step, not just for this specific set of questions, but really for whether it's the roads or the schools or any type of um, basic libertarian uh, uh, type of question, I think it's, uh, for starters, important to acknowledge that, okay, what are we doing right now? Does it seem to be working perfectly? All right, well, we have to start from that uh, a foundational point in order to have a realistic conversation going forward about this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I do think it's very important when people you know, talk about these things is, is to think about the consequences and the blowback too. And I bring up too, even with like the foster care system, how kids who go into the foster care system are themselves at a much higher risk of being uh, abused physically and or sexually and of being put on to SSRIs. So a lot of times kids who are put in the foster system when they're taken away from family in the current government paradigm, they are themselves uh, permanently harmed by, uh, you know, mind altering drugs and are, and are very frequently abused. So this idea that, you know, kids are necessarily also being saved because they've been taken out of the home is not necessarily true either. There are many children, sadly, who are taken into state custody who then are just further abused in different ways. You know, maybe before they had neglect and now they're having, um, you know, shaming and, and, you know, psychotropic drugs being forced upon them that's affecting them. And then they're, you know, getting obese because of how that's affecting their body. I mean, these are real things. Uh, Carlos Morales, uh, he wrote a book about this specifically called the, the case against CPS. I highly recommend people read that book. It gives you a really good sense of how the government solution to even, you know, kids in troubled homes has its own consequences. And you might be thinking, Oh, your kid's saved. It's like, Oh, you got to keep following the kid and see what happens after. Because in many cases, the kid is going from one form of trauma to another form of trauma. And CPS can also be weaponized, you know, as, as a tool uh, for parents who, for whatever reasons, are upset at each other. And sometimes false claims are made or, or things are said that are not true. And then kids are being taken away and ripped from homes. And that's its own issue, right? So you have to be careful to really think about the compared to what and actually look at what happens, you know, after that first step. Cause a lot of people only look at the first step and they say, Oh, okay, well government, yeah, they'll just come fix it. It's like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. Uh, what happened after they tried to fix it? Was it all just, you know, rainbows after that or were there some serious problems? And this kid now had more abuse and more trauma that now has to be dealt with. So. Jack, you seem uh, very well equipped to handle basically any question I throw at you in the world of uh, uh, libertarianism. Um, I, when I got on my kick in uh, early 2020, I was like, Republican Party sucks, arguably as much as the Democratic Party. I registered as a libertarian. And then um, this past year, or recently, just a few months ago, I tried to, uh, I ended up meeting a, a Cuban gentleman here in Louisville, Kentucky, who over the past year, I've gotten to know him. He was trying to run for, as a Republican, run for U.S. Congress for the city of Louisville, where I live. 
Um, and I liked him. You know, he had good ideas, and he's certainly better than the guy who's leaving the seat, John Yarmuth. Um, so I supported him. I wanted to vote for him in the primaries, and in order to do so, I had to be registered as a Republican here in Kentucky to vote for a Repu- you know which Republican I want to be able to run for the seat as a uh, um, you know for for U.S. Congress to be my representative. So I registered as a Republican. Going forward, I plan on right now, Jackie, tell me if this sounds stupid or what your thoughts are on it. I plan on staying registered as a Republican. And if someone comes along, unfortunately, I don't get to vote for Thomas Massey. My my mother and stepfather who live about 30 minutes away from me, they actually do, which is cool. Um, they get to vote for Thomas Massey. I do get to vote for Rand Paul, which I think is cool. But my theory here is if someone comes along who's going to be a good Republican... I want to be able to vote for them at every step of the way to represent me. If, let's say, Dave Smith in 2024 is the candidate for president versus DeSantis or Trump, I would happily vote for Dave Smith for president. Um, but my strategy is to stay registered as a Republican, vote for the best Republicans. If a libertarian comes along, like we had Brad Barron last year run against Mitch McConnell, I was very proud to vote for Brad Barron, the Libertarian candidate, instead of Mitch McConnell, of course. So I was proud of that. So I get to still do that, but staying registered as a Republican while keeping an eye on voting for Libertarian-leaning Republicans and, when appropriate, actually still voting for Libertarians. What are your thoughts on that approach? Sure. I mean, some people do that because they, you know, it's just their personal preference. I'm not much of a, a voting person myself. I haven't voted in seven years. Um, I think that if you've seen the movie uh, 2000 Mules, um, I'm not sure if you, you know, so that was Inesh D'Souza's video, but that- I have not seen really it. Great, I've, heard, I've heard I should, but I have not seen it yet. You, you definitely watch it. It's, it's fine. It's, it's obviously very mainline conservative and, and silly in some regards but it's a great reminder of how much the political system's manipulated. <laughs> they really show like people stuffing ballots at 4am into the, you know, the mail drop-offs and stuff like that. It is, it's just incredible how much of the political system, um, you know, really is just a sham uh, because of how much cronyism goes on, how many different ways that people try to cheat it and, you know, try to, uh, you know, stuff ballots or, or, you know, put people who are dead in for the, for the voting rolls and things like that. So what I, I try to tell people is that what matters more than your vote in the end is, is kind of how you, you know, you're changing minds. Your vote may have typically a statistically insignificant impact, but who you reach people with and the ideas and how they live their day to day and what they support with their resources. Um, you know, even if it's just a little bit of an incremental change. So I say to somebody, Hey, if you can get 5% of your consumer spending toward Liberty projects in year one, that's great. And then next year, 10% year, next year, 15, right? Eventually people by and large are going to start having, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, maybe even 50% of their consumer spending going toward organizations and groups and services and products of people who just don't hate your existence. I think that uh, is, is likely to produce more of the lasting change that voting you know, in itself, it's a nice little, all right, you know, I ticked off the box, you know, for the slave master suggestion, but it's, it's not something that is, uh, itself a, a surefire uh, way toward Liberty, um, in the end. And unfortunately that's just because the higher up you go within the political arena, uh, the, the less likely it is to affect material change. Cause there's 
lots of interest with people with billions of dollars throwing money at, at different issues and stuff and people being blackmailed and blackballed and sometimes knocked off to uh, make sure that certain issues get through. So it's a very tough arena to be in. And again, if someone finds joy and, and vote playing the voting game, I'm, you know, that's up to them. That's not for me. But uh, I think that as long as someone is actively trying to look for opportunities, just to think outside the establishment and try to send out a message that, Hey, you know, I'm tired of this left, right nonsense, just doing the same thing of growing the government and going to war more and, and getting more involved in our lives. You know, if there's any, chance at trying to shift that over to window. I think that's a good thing. It, it would obviously be great. If there were more Thomas, uh, you know, uh, Massey's in, in, in Congress and, and things like that. It'd be wonderful. Uh, I just am not terribly hopeful that in of itself that the vote is, is the uh, surefire saving grace to anything. Um, though I do see that, you know, when you have those voices, at least um, it is shifting the, the discourse and the coverage and the media and stuff. And so I see a value in that. I see a value in having the discourse be more about ending the war and ending the fed and saying how bad it is the government intervening our lives and that kind of thing. So that, that part to me is, is the, the silver lining. I say to, to all that. Uh, Jack, I connected with you through the libertarian party Mises caucus Facebook group. So you said you haven't voted in seven years could you give a summary of what the recent Mises Caucus takeover of the National Libertarian Party is? What does it mean? And going forward, are you going to maintain your stance that you don't vote? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus is a group that I support uh, actively. Uh, they're an awesome group of guys and girls who are out there trying to bring a principled message of liberty, you know, really rooted in Austrian economics and ethics education. And they're doing a fantastic job of just rallying people together and tapping into the culture and people who are, who are actually out there doing good work uh, to help unify libertarians toward this end, instead of just, you know, giving into the government's narratives and going along with whatever is important in the mainstream, they're actually challenging it um, openly and actively. I think that's wonderful. So I think anyone who's followed the Libertarian Party national Twitter page has already seen the type of messaging changes that are out there. They're much more radical for liberty, uh, you know, really talking about the wars and what's going on and trying to get people to be anti-war, talking about abolishing all gun control and the ATF and things like that. So very radical, very principled and, and much needed, a, a really refreshing a message out there. So I'm excited for them and what they're going to accomplish and they're going to continue to accomplish great things. Uh, because they're just really understanding of how important culture is and building community is. And I think that their ultimate aim of like secession nullification, which is, you know, trying to have smaller governments kind of secede or nullify bad federal laws and things like that. And trying to you know, break apart uh, that power structure, I think is, is just a great uh, wrench in, in the state's plans of trying to have total enslavement. So it's not the end all be all solution, but it's certainly a part of it. And it's a part that I support. Um, I will still be a non-voter, uh, you know, going forward indefinitely. I, it's not my thing. I just support people who are um, doing good work in outreach. So that doesn't change my support of the LP as a corporate body. The, uh, the you know, the LP is, you know, is not the government. It's just a private corporation. So I'm, I'm not like, you know, voting uh, in, in elections when you're, you're, talking about the LP itself in terms of positions, in terms of what they do. Uh, the LPMC is a political action committee. Again, it's not the government. It's 
it's a private corporation. So again, I support what they do and, and the out, activism and outreach they do. It's just the, the voting thing is just, is not for me. I mean, again, some people are going to do that and I encourage them to just do whatever they are comfortable with. Um, but for me, my work and my activism is much more in the, uh, you know, creative realm, educational realm and the producer realm. So I, I tend to focus my time on the things that is about changing minds, helping parents exit the schooling paradigm. So I do a lot of work with that, the honest teacher, getting families to actually get their kids out of the state brainwashing centers and encouraging people with inspiring messages through music, through comics, um, and through memes and other things that I do. So, you know, it's, it's, that's my passion. That's where I'm at. Again, it doesn't mean that's what anybody else should do. I always say, do what it, what it is that you are most passionate about and what you really are excited about. Because if you do that, you're going to excel, right? You're going to be happy about what you're doing. If you do what you love, you're going to be much more long-term oriented because it's not a chore to you. So whether it's writing a blog doing street activism, sign waving, uh, waving doing uh, you know signature gathering because you're trying to have like a, you know, a decriminalization ballot kind of thing come through so you can get people out of prison or jail. Again, do, do what it is that you're passionate about because if you do that, you're going to be happy. Your joy is going to be contagious and you're going to be much more successful in the end because you actually believe it in what it is that you're doing. So I try to, you know, encourage people to find their arena of what they like to do and then run with it. And if I can, uh, be a support in terms of a sounding board or something like that. Or if I just really like your project, you know, financially, you know, sometimes I'll support different organizations or groups or stuff like that. Like just recently I, I did a talk at the uh, ALED, which is this, uh, you know, kind of an economic conference for, for students in Africa. And I really support them in their work because they do economic education for, for students, you know, actually in Uganda and, and surrounding neighboring countries. Uh, who are trying to learn about free market principles and apply that in what's a very dire situation with the government there. It's not, not exactly uh, the most economically friendly governments over there in Africa. So, but they're out there doing good work and, you know, just stuff like that. Again, you find the people and the organizations that you love and then you go for it, you support them and, or, you know, create your own thing and just run with it. So. Did you advise the people in Uganda to dig up a bunch of gold? Is that how that happened? <laughs> No, no. So like they have actual students at their various universities there. They are entrepreneurs. So many of these, you know, students who are studying are thinking about ways to provide value to the local communities. And so they learn the principles of like business practices and thinking about, you know, customer service, branding, you know, finding opportunities to improve, you know, people's lives. And then of course, taking that in mind with advocacy for getting the government out of the way of people trying to actually provide value for people. It's, it's it's kind of like a holistic experience of both the educational side of, you know, encouraging entrepreneurship there and helping people be effective advocates for saying, Hey government, get out of our way. We're trying to improve the lives of people there. Uh, and, you know, trying to you know, find ways to, to get people to become wealthier and have more efficiencies in their lives. So it's really awesome what they do. ALED is, is definitely an organization to look up and support. You actually went to Africa? No, I don't. Uh, I haven't physically gone. So when I did my uh, conference speech, it was a remote via, um, you know, kind of like a teleconference kind of thing to them while they were actually physically meeting and, and you know, and support, of course, remotely as well. But someone like uh, Dan Berman, he runs a taxation and theft page. He's, he's a cool guy. He does a lot of different liberty, uh, I guess you could say outreach. And he's physically been there. He's provided them with books as well. His work is really good to check out too. He has a lot of cool you know, merchandise. He just came out with a new wine called Blood of Tyrants. So he's doing some fun stuff there and he supports them as well. And I really uh, love his work in, in terms of, of helping out ALED, 
and, uh, you know, bringing lots of cool products like, you know, taxation stuff, cards and stuff like that for when you do your tip to people. So yeah, stuff like that. When the story came out about Uganda finding all that gold, I think it was just a couple of days ago, my wife and I were doing some, some online research and we were, you know, I was, I remember Venezuela, for example, was very rich in oil and different natural, um, you know, commodities, ways for them to have wealth. But then, of course, through socialism and basically big government involvement, they managed to just fuck it all up. So I, we were trying to figure out if Uganda is the type of government that is going to take this natural resource and basically fuck it all up. And based on our Google searches, that unfortunately appears to be possibly the case. They have these great natural resources, which socialism loves, and then they're just going to I hope they do better, but, you know, based on history, they will probably just kind of piss it all away. Yeah, there's lots of cronyism that happens with those governments. I mean, they got, they got real bad deals and, the, you know, they live in luxury as many government officials do uh, compared to the general population uh, while selling off the resources to third party, either corporations or the governments and screwing everybody else. So it's, it's sad. It is sad. Um, but the culture is of course changing the, you know, people, the general population is changing against this, this type of corruption. So that's what it is. Jack, I really appreciate your time before we wrap things up. What kind of plugs or mentions would you like to get in before we wrap up the episode? Sure. So, um, right now, one of the ways you can connect with me most readily is at my comic web- website. That's ball comic B as in victory, V O L C O M I C.com ball comic.com. That's where you can connect with me for the comic book series. I have social media pages pretty much everywhere for Jack Lloyd, you know, from Twitter to Flow to East and C to Minds to Facebook. So you can look that stuff up there too. My book, The Definitive Guide to Libertarian Voluntarism is on Amazon. So you can just plug that right in there. And, and yeah, right now there's, there's no major campaign stuff going on at the moment that I normally have because we just wrapped up the voluntarist 10th anniversary issue on Indiegogo. So we're, uh, we're in a production mode and preparing for some events that were coming uh, that are coming up that we're going to be appearing at, including the Our Revolution. Uh, we're going to be there in Orlando um, at the Gaylord Palms. And then uh, later this year, we'll be at the International Students for Liberty Conference. Uh, that'll be in Miami in October. Did you say that the Yao Revolution? Yeah, we'll be at the Yao Revolution event uh, in August. Yeah. Is that the one that I, I think Rand and Ron Paul and like Kate, Glenn Jacobs and a bunch of Dave Smith, a bunch of people would be there, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, I think Rand might be teleconferencing him, but Ron Paul should be physically there. So should physically, you know, be there. Uh, Michael Malice and Dave Smith, Zuby, as you said, uh, Glenn, Kane Jacobs. Yep. There's going to be lots of uh, people there. So it'll be fun. Wasn't there some drama re- related to Young Americans for Liberty not long ago where they were involved with, what was it, one of Dan Crenshaw's people? And, and that's a very kind of faux pas direction to go into. So a bunch of people were calling out Young Americans for Liberty is basically becoming a recruiting uh, group for like neocons. I- I- am I off on that? Uh, there's concern like with like uh, some changes in leadership that they weren't being as radical in their messaging and that they were pandering to, to neocons. I think that the organization definitely is, is something that is worth saving and, and definitely is, is worth influencing. So I just hope that the people there, you know, continue to keep up the Ron Paul fire spirit. That really is what underpins Yao. 
Um, and I think that if, you know, if everyone can just give their two cents to them that they want the fiery messaging, they don't want the neocon stuff. They really want, you know, the, the Ron Paul spirit to be kept alive. I think if everyone could just, you know, give that little note to whoever's there and while they're there in leadership, um, it'd be great. And I, I think that there's a lot of good people still in the organization. There's a lot of great student activists, uh, but just making sure that the organization stays on track uh, for promoting a principled liberty message, I think is, is absolutely essential. So, Great stuff. Once again, Jack Lloyd, I really appreciate your time. I hope to speak with you again sometime soon, Jack. Thank you very much. Oh, it's my pleasure, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. I want to thank everyone for tuning in to The Kelly Patrick Show. Of course, we will have another episode out soon. Thank you.